So, but not going to do a full thing, but just want to mention uh, Trump's Homeland Security Secretary, Kristen Nielsen, resigned or got fired. I think that's good, I guess. I mean, she was terrible, but she was essentially just carrying out whatever insane, immoral, awful, and frankly illegal uh, things President Trump wanted her to. I mean, she was her, her marching orders were coming from Trump and really Stephen Miller, who is Trump's brain on immigration, uh, the caging of children, uh, children dying at the border. That's happened several times now. Um, and, and just, you know, the increased ICE raids, all of these things. Uh, and when Kristen Nielsen was challenged in interviews, even by Fox News, now she never really had good answers for any of this. So, um, you know, I don't think it's a, it's, it's a good thing she's resigning, but I think it's a little inconsequential in the grand scheme of things because he's just replacing her with another regressive, immoral, uh, you know, anti-immigrant, anti-Mexican, anti-Muslim uh, bigot. So really the only way to stop Trump's madness is at the election, um, at the election booth, which obviously 2020 on the Democratic side is heavy underway, which we're going to get to in a few minutes. So uh, my, my verdict, goodbye, good riddance. Uh, you had no moral fortitude. Any, any person with objective morality, sense, uh, and just some ethics would have resigned as soon as Trump uh, was proposing, you know, these really, really draconian, evil, immoral policies at the border. Uh, so Kristen Nielsen hung in there for whatever her reasons, and she's going to be forever tainted with the reputation of having caged, uh, you know, children at, at the border and beyond. So good riddance, uh, but I don't think we've seen the last of this regressive policy. And there's already reports that Stephen Miller is trying to push Trump even further to the right, if that's possible, on immigration. And I think we're seeing from Trump, he is really doubling and tripling down, thinking that if he just doubles, triples down on the immigration, on the wall, on, you know, the other, on the caravan, uh, on, you know, they're flooding into the country, the, these, these um, refugees, now he wants to get rid of the asylum system. If he just doubles and triples down on that, he'll have the same result he had in 2016, which is winning. Uh, I think his calculus is wrong because a lot of his voters, uh, particularly in the Midwest, weren't only uh, voting for him because of anti-immigrant fervor. They were voting for him because they connected that anti-immigrant thing and they were anti-immigrant because they felt that the immigrants are the reason that their plants are closing down and their jobs are getting offshore to cheaper labor and, and these kinds of things. If you read the exit polls, I did, it wasn't it wasn't Russia or Vladimir Putin that elected Donald Trump in Wisconsin, Michigan, uh, Ohio, Pennsylvania. It was trade and immigration. Well, those plants, they're not reopening. In fact, a lot of those plants in those states that Trump won are closing, as we showed you when we covered General Motors laying off 15,000 of its workers uh, in Detroit and other states. So I think that Trump doubling, tripling down, yeah, he's going to hit those, you know, hit those little... Um, uh, happy buttons for his older racist voters, but the voters that went for him and were thinking in terms of, you know, being anti-immigration or we need a wall and all those things, a big reason they were 
thinking that way was because he sold them on the connection to jobs and these plant closures and you know cheaper labor from other countries. To a certain extent, that's true. But these plants are not closing because of immigrants. These, not, these plants were not closing because of, you know, the caravan coming from Guatemala and Honduras. So I think Trump's going to have a big problem with that. I also think he's going to have a big problem if Bernie Sanders is the nominee because Bernie Sanders is very attractive to those same people in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Michigan who might have been receptive to Trump's message on the plants closing down and NAFTA and I'm going to bring the jobs back and... Uh, who also have been kind of conned into thinking immigration is partly the reason. I think that Bernie has a message that will actually make them realize, no, no, it's not immigrants who did this. It's Bill Clinton who did this to you. It's Hillary Clinton who did this to you. It's the Democrat and Republican Party that did this to you. It's the banks and, and, and the special interests who wrote NAFTA and deals like that. It's the real estate developers who bought off the politicians who swooped in to basically for economic development purposes, which really economic development and gentrification is code for get the poor people out, get the black people out, let's bulldoze uh, you know, working class communities and build high-rise luxury uh, apartments and condos and you know, shopping districts and restaurants and all these things and displace working people. So the bottom line is I think Trump doubling and tripling down and, and banking on his base being big enough to reelect him Wrong calculation, but we'll see. But on Kristen Nielsen, what can you say? Reprehensible. Uh, she will be forever drawn to this. And by the way, Obama did a lot of terrible things on immigration, too. There were immigrants put in cells, uh, you know, by Obama's administration, too. It just got no media coverage because the media was asleep during the Obama administration, just like they were asleep with him illegally droning. Uh, the majority of the brown Middle Eastern world and many other terrible things the Obama administration did. So as I always says, yes, Trump is awful, but let's not pretend that all of this just begun with Donald Trump. I want to start on Julian Assange, um, who WikiLeaks had tweeted, uh, I believe like three or four days ago, that they had a source essentially saying that the Ecuadorian president uh, and Ecuador was imminently going to evict Julian Assange from the Ecuador embassy, embassy uh, in the United Kingdom. Obviously, Julian Assange has been there for, I think, since 2012. Basically, it has become more and more and more and more and more and more a, a, a clear case of torture, uh, what they're doing to Julian Assange. Torture is not just waterboarding. Torture is not just... Um, you know, the, the grisly things we've, we've seen at Abu Ghraib, Abu, Abu Ghraib and, and, you know, CIA black sites around the world. Um, there is psychological torture. So they have essentially cut off Julian Assange over the last year uh, from the outside world. They took away his Internet. They took away uh, phone uh, privileges. Uh, they have basically t taken out outside world. He, he has not left the embassy. You know, he used to be able to go outside on the balcony. He is not able to do that. And there's many reports that he, his health has deteriorated, uh, his physical health, obviously his mental health. Can you imagine being locked up in a small, I think it's like a one floor flat in an embassy, 2012. So you're talking, that's seven years, seven years. And this is a man, this is a man who obviously hit, hit one of his biggest sources of uh, mental stimulation, uh, intellectual, 
you know, um, presence is the internet and researching and, and those kinds of things. Well, he's been cut off from that. So essentially what you have here, and I think people are almost like the discussion on why is Julian Assange even forced to be in this embassy has been lost because the mainstream corporate media, the mainstream corporate media who used to love Julian Assange, the New York Times was happy to cover and, and work with WikiLeaks in, in, in some cases to release damaging damaging but truthful YouTube uh, WikiLeaks has a 100% accuracy record uh, leaks that were very important for the public's right to know WikiLeaks has released many 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 times I mean information on war crimes by the United States and other countries secret secret military programs by the United States and other countries uh, obviously you know the Democrats were very very fine they were very happy with uh, leaks many years ago that made that made the Republicans look bad and, and vice versa. But Julian Assange, and I want to remind you of, of why is he even in this embassy? Uh, a lot of you know, but some of you don't. So this is from The Guardian. And again, I, um, I'm covering this first because, I mean, according to WikiLeaks, they have intel that the Equ- Ecuador is trying to evict him, which would lead to him most likely being extradited to the United States where he would basically get a show trial and be found guilty of probably treason or espionage, you know, espionage or whatever they would find him guilty of and probably get the death penalty, if you ask me. So rumors are rife that Julian Assange will soon be released from the Ecuadorian embassy in London after the organization he founded, WikiLeaks, suggested his exit was imminent. WikiLeaks tweeted that a high-level source within the Ecuadorian state told it Assange will be expelled from the embassy within hours, but a senior Ecuadorian official said no decision has been made to remove him from the building. Why is he there? In August 2010, an arrest warrant was issued for Assange for two separate allegations, one of rape and one of molestation, after he visited Sweden from a speaking trip. He was questioned by police in Stockholm and denied the allegations. Assange revealed his fears that if he were extradited to Sweden, he would then be extradited again to the U.S. to face charges over WikiLeaks publications of secret U.S. government files. After an internal arrest warrant was issued by Swedish police through Interpol, Assange presented himself to the Metropolitan Police in December 2010 and appeared at an extradition hearing where he was granted bail. Following a couple years of legal battles, UK courts ruled Assange should be extradited to Sweden and the WikiLeaks founder entered the Ecuadorian embassy in August 2016 seeking political asylum, which was granted. Swedish prosecutors dropped a preliminary investigation into the allegation of rape in May 2017, stating that at this point, all possibilities to conduct the investigation are exhausted. The separate allegations of sexual assault made by, second, made by a second Swedish woman were dropped by Swedish authorities in 2015 after the statute of limitations expired. Why doesn't he just leave the embassy? The Met issued a warrant for his arrest after he failed to surrender to the conditional bail set in December 2010. This warrant remains. In January 2018, lawyers for Assange attempted to have the warrant torn up on the grounds that it had lost its purpose and its function. But in February of that year, Westminster Magistrates Court said the UK arrest warrant was still valid. Assange said he continues to fear an arrest on British soil would ultimately lead to an extradition to the US. Does the US still want him? We don't know for sure. But a mistake in a document filed by the U.S. authorities, which emerged in November last year in an unrelated case, hinted criminal charges may have been prepared in secret. 
The text to the court filing, which relates to a completely separate case, includes two mentions of someone called Assange, including a suggestion that the documentation in the case, quote, would need to remain sealed until Assange is arrested in connection with the charges. In January, lawyers for Assange said they are taking action aimed at making Donald Trump's administration reveal charges secretly filed against the WikiLeaks founder. So essentially, the origin, the origin of him being in that embassy was, was related to charges in Sweden over assault and molestation that were dropped. Uh, he obviously has denied these charges. Um, I believe, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe uh, the women that came out uh, against him kind of backpedaled a little bit on that. So essentially, Assange has been holed up in an embassy for six, seven years because there's a warrant out for him not meeting conditional bail? What? This is obviously not the reason he's being holed up. I mean, that's like, you know, there's always like a cover story why somebody um, is being targeted. And, oh, no, he just... You know, it's the conditional bail. That's, that's why there's a warrant out for him. Sweden dropped the charges that were originally the reason he asked for asylum because he didn't, he didn't want to be extradited to Sweden because he knew if he was extradited to Sweden, he'd be extradited to the U.S. And, and look at the global geopolitical scene here. The United States is a very, very intimidating imperialist force. So if the United States wants Julian Assange, Sweden, who, like many other countries, wants to be in good stead and be a good boy, boys and girls to the United States, would hand him over. It's probable that the UK would too. And the United States, under Barack Obama, who, by the way, Trump is ca- continuing with it, but Barack Obama's administration was the worst, the most unprecedented in American history in terms of going after whistleblowers. The only problem was eventually his Department of Justice said, like, the things that you want to do, which included going after Assange and WikiLeaks, like, they won't hold up in a court of law because there are protections for whistleblowers legally as part of freedom of speech, freedom of the press. And, you know, many years ago, these same people, particularly these Hillbots, and these Hillary Clinton, neoliberal, Democratic Party lifers who now suddenly hate Julian Assange, hate WikiLeaks, you know, think they're enemies of the state, think they're working with Putin. Now, many years ago, they were pro-WikiLeaks. Indeed. And the Secretary of State, by the way, remember Hillary Clinton, you know, she said it was a joke. But she had openly, you know, kind of said, why don't we just take him out? This was her as Secretary of State. And, and that was leaked. And then she said, oh, I was just joking. Mm-hmm. So what I think is super, super important here for you to know. Oh, first, let me play the clip uh, from WikiLeaks and Julian Assange attorney. Here is uh, Julian Assange's attorney 
Jennifer Robinson. Well, despite persistent rumours, officials from Ecuador have denied claims Julian Assange is about to be kicked out of their London embassy. Earlier this week, WikiLeaks tweeted that they feared the UK and Ecuador had finalised an agreement for his arrest, which involved his eviction onto the street. The WikiLeaks founder has been living in the embassy for seven years now. In recent days, his supporters have been gathering outside, voicing concerns about his deteriorating health. And in a Weekend Sunrise exclusive, we're joined now at Brecky Central by Julian Assange's lawyer, Jennifer Robinson. Morning to you. Hi, Thank you so much Morning. for coming in. Is there any truth to Julian being evicted by Ecuador, do you think? Well, this information came from a credible source high up in the Ecuadorian government, and that information was given to WikiLeaks. Uh, the, the accusation was that they're going to expel him and that there's an agreement with the UK that he would his asylum protection would not be respected and that he could be extradited to the United States with an assurance that he wouldn't be sent to the death penalty. Now, that's not the basis upon which he was granted asylum in the first place. He was, of course, granted asylum because of publishing information about war crimes, human rights abuse, corruption by governments around the world. And that's information that he, he published and has won awards for, including the Sydney Peace Prize. Mm. So it's a very serious situation and one that we are concerned about. It's, that's a good reset, Jennifer, because it's seven years ago now. A lot of people have forgotten why he went in there in the first place. But he can't live the rest of his life inside the Ecuadorian embassy. He has to come out at some stage. What is the plan? The plan is, as it has always been, we've been seeking assurances that he will not be sent to the US to face prosecution for his publishing activities. This is award journalism, award-winning journalism that they've won awards for, including the Walkley Award for the most outstanding contribution to journalism in Australia. This is a serious situation that an Australian citizen faces prosecution in the United States for that kind of activity. If it were Egypt or Turkey, the Australian government would be criticising it and standing up for its citizen. Why isn't the Australian government doing it in this case? That's our question. So what are you calling on the Australian government to do? Clearly, they need to do more to, to, to move this in some direction. We have been asking for years that the Australian government ask its ally, the United States, for an assurance that he would not be sent to, to the US to face prosecution. We want him to be able to come home to Australia. He ended up seeking asylum in the Ecuadorian embassy because the Australian government wasn't doing that. Now, we know that the former Foreign Minister, Julie Bishop, raised it at the highest levels with the UK government. We're now asking that the Australian government raise it again with the United Kingdom and with the United States to ensure that he's able to leave the embassy, get the medical treatment that he needs and be able to come home to Australia. How is his physical... And I guess almost as importantly, his mental health. It must be extraordinarily difficult staying in that one place for so, so long. I don't think anyone can understand just how difficult it is. He's living inside a ground floor flat. He doesn't have outside access. He can't exercise. He can't go outside for medical treatment. I don't think anyone can understand how difficult that what, what is. What does he do? He works, he reads, he's, you know, he continues his work, but it's, it's a very difficult situation. He was cut off from visitors last year, he was cut off from the internet, phone calls. He has very limited access to the outside world and his health is deteriorating. This is, as the UN is starting to investigate, um, we consider this is going to have a permanent impact upon his health and that is torture. For anyone that says he brought it on himself, he didn't have to publish this information, what, what do you say to those people? He has provided a huge public service. As I said, he's won the Sydney Peace Prize, Walkley Awards, for having provided this information to the public. He takes that, that obligation very seriously. It's changed the way we think about the right to know. It's revealed human rights abuse around the world. It's being used in courts around the world. That he's facing prosecution for this and has had to seek asylum for having done so is an outrage and a grave mm. injustice. So to say that he's brought this upon himself for having provided that public service is just wrong. We should be criticising not Julian Assange, but the United States government. Is he close to breaking? 
He's holding up as best as you can imagine these circumstances, and I can't imagine how mm. I would feel if I was in his, his position. But Does he think about walking out, just saying, right, this is too hard, I've got to get out of here? Well, of course he, has, he thinks about it, and of course we're concerned that that could happen at some point, but he has, to, he has been granted asylum, and we are doing everything that we can to make sure that he can benefit from that protection. And that was Assange's lawyer, Jennifer Robinson. Um, you know, honestly, yes, I agree with her that Australia should be speaking up. Australia is one of the United States' big allies. But I don't expect um, corporate media journalists to speak up because they're not journalists, as I always tell you. They're basically glorified public relations stooges. That goes for New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, MSNBC, the whole nine. But at this point, I think it should be a litmus test for presidential candidates, including Bernie Sanders, Jewel, uh, Tulsi Gabbard, Elizabeth Warren, anyone claiming to be progressive, and obviously progressive is a loose word uh, in this democratic field, other than Bernie and Tulsi, in my view. But this is a crime against the First Amendment. This is a crime against journalism. This is a crime against humanity. Yes, he's not been in prison, but they've essentially taken seven years of this man's life, not just seven years of his life, but seven years of his work. Yes, he's been able to do work and, and continue releasing things. I still believe that his release of John Podesta's emails, uh, the, D, you know, the DNC stuff, all that, I think was uh, uh, valuable for the public to know. If he would have released and they would have hacked... Uh, I don't know, Kellyanne Conway's um, emails or Paul Manafort's emails or the Trump's emails. I would have vigorously covered it the same way I did the Podesta leaks. It showed corruption uh, in Clinton's campaign emails. It showed illegal coordination between super PACs and the campaign, which never was covered by the mainstream media. But there are laws uh, barring coordination between super PACs and campaigns. And Hillary Clinton's campaign was breaking them. It showed coordination between Hillary Clinton's campaign and Barack Obama's administration while Bernie Sanders was running. It showed that the DNC was literally crafting strategy memo memos before Bernie Sanders even announced for Hillary Clinton as the general election candidate and how she would defeat what they thought would probably be Jeb Bush. It showed a lot of other things. Um, so beyond the fact that it's a crime that he's been holed up in this embassy. You know, these, these people and these candidates attacking Trump, uh, rightly so, for his dangerous talk about fake news and all this. I think that CNN, the New York Times, Washington Post are corporate news. I think that they are propaganda in many, many cases. I'm not going to go as far as fake news because I don't want to mimic what Trump's saying because what Trump is using it in a... a intellectually dishonest and frankly an authoritarian way to basically shield any coverage critical of him, any reporting critical of him, any reporting that shows illegal or, or you know sinister behavior by him as fake news. That's not, that's not a, a valid or even intellectually honest way of using that. So I don't want to say that. But how can these people, uh, both political pundits, journalists, be attacking Trump's attack on the press while in the same breath being completely silent against the Ecuadorian government's attacks on Julian Assange, aided by the United Kingdom and the United States, who is
pulling the strings from behind the scenes. And by the way, by the way, let's not forget, this was not covered that much uh, after Barr basically said Mueller didn't find collusion. Mueller did not even contact Julian Assange for an interview. He didn't contact Julian Assange or anyone from WikiLeaks for an interview. Julian Assange nor WikiLeaks was charged with anything. So if Mueller didn't even care to talk to the man or WikiLeaks, because the, the underlying assessment, the, 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 you know, this is fact, the group think is the Russian government or intermediaries to the Russian government were WikiLeaks source for the Podesta leaks. And that's how WikiLeaks got them. And WikiLeaks was either knowingly or unknowingly passing off stuffs hacked and, and stolen by the Russian government. Well, if there were evidence of that, you would assume Mueller has that evidence. And if there were evidence of that, why in the world would you not have a conversation with Julian Assange, who, by all accounts, according to Matt Taibbi uh, from Rolling Stone's report, was ready and willing to talk to Julian Assange, uh, to talk to Robert Mueller. I don't think he was ready and willing to leave the embassy to do so, but, you know, this thing's called Skype and things like that. So it's... it's what exactly, what exactly, to be clear, what exactly, if you did not even think it was important enough or helpful to your case enough to speak with Julian Assange at WikiLeaks, how exactly does it stand up that the Russian government was their source and that the Russian government passed off uh, these emails to Julian Assange? You would think that if Julian Assange and WikiLeaks was knowingly taking information from the Russian government, that you would, would at least demand to speak with him. Mueller tried very hard to speak with President Trump. So no, no indictment of WikiLeaks or Assange, and they didn't speak with the man. When something doesn't make sense, there's usually a reason it doesn't make sense. You would have to believe that Mueller knew there was no firm evidence and nothing that he could prosecute Julian Assange or WikiLeaks on. But this has never been covered. Oh boy, Democratic Party, they're at war. They're at war with progressives, with, um, you know, anyone really that is saying, no, same old, same old, ain't gonna do. And uh, President Obama now, now jumping on board former President Barack Obama, I should say, jumping on board with this. Uh, let's see what uh, the president had to say about the, uh, what, what did he call it? The progressive firing squad, he called it, uh, that is now uh, creating too rigid, too rigid of a political system where, you know, this is very dangerous to the neoliberal order. And this is the guy who ran as a progressive, mind you. Here we go. You worry about sometimes is a certain kind of rigidity, where we say, ah, I'm sorry, this is how it's going to be, and then we start sometimes creating what's called a uh, circular firing squad. You start shooting at your allies because one of them is straying from purity on the issues. Of whom does he speak? <laughs> <laughs> Only Barack Mystery. Obama knows of whom he speaks. Um, oh, Barack. And, you know, I got a lot of criticism over the weekend for tweeting that and basically saying, what allies are you talking about? Because I don't really view uh, Wall Street, 
uh, fossil fuel executives, big pharma executives, real estate developers, Silicon Valley, and all, all the special interests that the allies, uh, Barack Obama, President Obama is talking about as my, you know, the, the people that take their money and then do their bidding. I don't really view them as my allies. I don't know about you. So President Obama, who, by the way, when he's talking about this purity test and this firing squad, what exactly was he doing in 2007 and 2008 when he was arguing, rightly so, by the way, that Hillary Clinton was not pure enough as a Democrat, that she was not a pure progressive, that she was not um, fighting for the little guy, that she was, without using these words, bought off by Wall Street. Was, was, was that like not a firing squad, but just like, you know, playing paintball? I mean... I mean, Obama, in a different way, I'm not equating Obama to Trump, but Obama hoodwinked people just like Trump did. Only, you know, Obama hoodwinked people to think he was progressive, and Trump kind of, yeah, Trump also hoodwinked people into thinking he was progressive. But Obama primaried uh, Congressman Bobby Rush uh, in, I believe, 2000. I don't know if he was a congressman or a senator, I forget, in Illinois. Uh, Obama primary the Clinton political machine. Remember, 2008, it was Hillary's turn. So Obama now, as you know, a former president, is now suddenly, well, you know, we, we, we run the risk of hurt, harming our allies if they're not completely pure. You know what? You know what? I think we've harmed our real allies, which are working people, by not demanding some purity. Because when they use the word purity, let me explain what, they're actu- what purity actually means. Integrity. Integrity. What, when I ask for purity, I just want politicians that are, you know, have some integrity, that say what they mean, that will follow up on their pledges. Bernie Sanders, I don't agree with Bernie Sanders on every single issue. I think Bernie Sanders has fomented a lot of this Russia hysteria, to tell you the truth. I don't love his stance on Russia. I think on foreign policy, he could be stronger. I think Tulsi Gabbard is more to the left on foreign policy than Bernie Sanders. Um, you know, there's, there's some issues that I don't think he's been completely the strongest on. So, but that doesn't mean that I don't personally like Bernie Sanders because he doesn't agree with me on every single thing. I don't think, I don't think most progressives... Demand, you must, you must fill every single box of mine. We demand that you have integrity, that you are actually serving us, not the special interest, because you cannot serve us while taking money from the very special interests that are oppressing us. And when I say us, I'm talking, about, I'm talking as a white, semi-privileged man. I'm not a black person that has been way worse affected by global imperialism and the United Corporations of America, or, a, or you know, a poor white, per- white, poor white working person. There's a lot of people watching that have had it worse than I have. I grew up in a, yeah, like straight middle class family. Um, you know, I've had struggles, but not anywhere near the people that I have met and covered have. So, you know, I think Barack Obama basically maybe somewhere along the line when he was a community organizer, was progressive. But the minute you start taking meetings with Wall Street, Goldman Sachs, and by the way, Barack Obama, his poll numbers, if you look, in 2007 and 2008, he was far behind uh, Hillary Clinton. 
It was when Barack Obama started doing auditions for Wall Street in, be in behind closed door meetings and basically singing the tune for Wall Street that he'd be for them. And Wall Street executives kind of put, uh, put, out, a, put out an hypothesis back then to candidate Obama. What if, uh, you know, there was a recession, they called it. Or, you know, some banks caused a problem. You know, would you bail us out? And Barack Obama said, well, yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm a supporter of the uh, financial industry. Uh, we, you know, we can't let you guys fail. Then all of a sudden, the money started flooding in. And I didn't know at the time, I wasn't as politically aware then as I am now, that he took more money at that time in 2007, 2008, than anyone, any candidate had ever taken from Wall Street. So Barack Obama is now basically, and he's not saying it, but who he's talking to is Bernie Sanders. Who he's talking to is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rokana, uh, uh, the left. When I say the left, I mean the progressive left, because the left is, is a you know, conflated term. So then you have this. House Democrats campaigns are campaign arm nears war with liberals over primary fights because we know that the DCCC has now cut off the head of the snake. They've said if you're doing business with the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez type campaigns, you're done. Our business with you is forever done. Talk about democracy, right? The House Democratic campaign arm is nearing open warfare with the party's rising liberal wing as political operatives close to Speaker Nancy Pelosi try to shut down primary challenges before what is likely to be a hard-fought campaign next year to preserve the party's shaky majority. Progressive Democrats were infuriated last month when Representative Sherry Bustos of Illinois, the chairwoman of the campaign arm, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, moved to protect centrist incumbents by formally breaking committee business ties with political consultants and pollsters who go to work for primary challengers. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Democrat of New York, who owes her seat to a successful primary challenge, went so far as to encourage her 3.8 million Twitter followers to pause their donations to the campaign committee in protest. She also started a fundraising push on her official Twitter account for representatives Johanna Hayes of Connecticut, Katie Hill of California, and Mike Levin of California. That initiative... Ocasio Ms. Ocasio-Cortez said on Twitter, raised 30000 in roughly two hours. She also helped raise money for Representative Katie Porter of California and Lauren Underwood of Illinois. The open hostilities are just the latest in the rising tensions between an experienced party establishment focusing on what is possible in the short run and a group of young liberals chafing at such restraint. House Democrats have divided over single-payer, Medicare for All, versus incremental legislation to bolster the Affordable Care Act, and over Ms. Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal versus less ambitious climate change policies. Skip it around. Ms. Bustos's rule prohibits Democratic consultants and vendors working for a primary challenger to an incumbent from receiving work from the committee. It comes as ardent liberal organizations like Justice Democrats, emboldened by a pair of high-profile wins in 2018, Representative Ayanna Presley of Massachusetts and Ocasio-Cortez are aggressively gearing up to challenge centrist or old-line Democrats with liberal candidates. In the latest swipe in a fight that has erupted into open hostilities, a coalition of progressive groups on Friday introduced an online database of go-to vendors for insurgent candidates emblazoned with the heading, despite the DCC's, bu DCCC's bullying, we're still going to work on primaries. Quote, 
We reject the DCC's attempt to hoard power, which will only serve to keep the talent pool and Congress itself disproportionately white and male. Maria Urbina, the national political director for Indivisible, a progressive, uh, a progressive grassroots group, said of the campaign committee, incumbents who engage fully with their constituents shouldn't fear primaries and shouldn't rely on the national institutions like the DCCC to suppress challenges before voters voters ever have a say. Quote, I support the notion that the primary purpose of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee is to elect Democrats in tough districts so we could either win with win the majority or hold a majority, said Hakeem Jeffries of New York's uh, the number four Democrat. Whew! I support the notion that the primary purpose of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee is to elect Democrats in tough districts so we could either win the majority or hold the majority. Here you have basically the Democratic Party saying, uh, vote blue no matter who. If you dare challenge our allies, as Barack Obama calls them, i.e. incumbents, many of whom who've been in there for two, three terms, most of whom take the very money that progressive populist, the progressive populist explosion happening right now is against. That's why Bernie Sanders has such support. That's why Ocasio-Cortez had such support. They don't take that money. By the way, Bernie Sanders has raised more money than any other candidate. Average dollar donation, 20 bucks. $20. And he's raised, it's more now, $18.2 million in the first 41 days of his campaign. So the Democratic Party is essentially saying, we don't care about your exploding progressive movement. Uh, we don't care what the polls say on the Green New Deal, on Medicare for All, on uh, free public college, on a, you know, ending private prisons, ending wars. Uh, could go on. We don't care. We care about electoral victories, even though the very strategy that we're embracing now of just, you know, stick with the same crony Democrats has lost over a thousand seats in 10 years. The only reason that the Democratic Party was able to retake the House wasn't because people are just suddenly embracing, you know, neoliberal centrism. A, you had a wildly unpopular president in Donald Trump. B, I mean, just look at the map. You had a, a, a ton, ton, uh, way more female candidates uh, and many ran on progressive policies. But the main reason was the tr Trump. It wasn't because people are just loving, um, you know, neoliberalism all of a sudden. And by the way, the, the demographic that voted most in the midterms that favored the Democrats were pe the same people that helped elect Trump, those suburban moms, those suburban women who now have turned against Trump in large numbers. So the Democratic Party is basically saying we don't care about the working people. We don't care about millennials. We don't care about older progressives. We don't care what you have to say. Fall the fuck in line. And I just got demonetized to make the point. Can't curse on YouTube. You get demonetized. So leave a super chat if you, if you can. To the point now that you're basically, I mean, you're, you're rigging the rules. You're trying to rig the rules. 
by saying, no, 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 you can't work. If you're a digital consulting firm or you're a fundraising firm or you're a social media firm or fill in the, fill in the types of companies that work with candidates, you can't work with a challenger. Even if the challenger, you know, let's say the challenger was a veteran. Let's say the challenger is a nurse. Let's say the challenger is a teacher. Because those radical progressives want health care for all. Can't, we don't support that. Those radical progressives are fighting for the environment that's in, literally up in flames in many places. Not only is this a terrible, terrible, terrible on, on the merits strategy by the Democratic Party, Oh, the optics. When you're trying to say Trump is the most corrupt president of all time, when you're trying to say Trump is basically, you know, an oligarch and a plutocrat and hoodwinked America, while you on your side are basically saying no money, you cannot put your, you cannot give your money to anyone challenging the democratic corporate neoliberal order. That is why Trump won in the first place. Because the opposition to Trump was a corporate, consultant-clad, poll-driven, everything out of her mouth came from polls and consultants, robot. And by the way, this rule would not only basically uh, take Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's campaign out by the knees, could have taken Barack Obama's campaign out by the knees if you broadened it out to presidential politics because they could do that too down the road and say any primary, any, you know, let's say, um, I don't know, let's say there was a President Kamala Harris and you had a challenge to her. Let's say, I don't know, Tulsi Gabbard, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, What's next? You're going to say any vendors that work for the primary challenger to the, pre- the Democratic corporate president? The Democratic Party, they, 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 they see where the winds are going, but they don't care where the winds are going because they would rather lose while still taking the money than win with integrity because you can't teach old dogs new tricks, right? So Nancy Pelosi... She don't want to run on small dollar donations. The Sherry Bustoses, Bustoses of the world, the, the Stenny Hoyers, the Dick Durbins, they don't want to change the program and suddenly be like progressive and be championing uh, policies that the majority support because then they would have to basically have, you know, a long string of breakups with the very special interests that have bought them full body for years. For decades. And they're, they, they're not programmed to actually run on populism. They're not programmed to actually run on a small dollar engine. They don't see its validity. They don't see its effectiveness. And they don't see that this is actually the way to win. Let me tell you something. If the election were held today and the Democratic Party rigged it and it was Joe Biden, Trump would win re-election. Same goes for Kamala Harris. Same goes for Amy Klobuchar. Kirsten Gillibrand, Cory Booker, and Beto, I stand on trees, I stand on bars, I stand on your head without any policy or work. I don't know if you saw pictures out there that he was in Iowa to a pretty small crowd standing on a broken treetop or a tree stump. As the DCCC, 
works to basically block out the Ocasio-Cortezes of the world, they're still raking in the corporate lobbyist money. This is from Sludge. Corporate lobbyists are raising an increasing amount of money for the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee at a time when the House Democratic's campaign arm is taking fire from the left for its efforts to freeze out primary challengers. Progressives have roundly criticized the DCCC for its plans to not conduct business with political vendors that work for candidates who plan to challenge incumbent Democrats. Representative Rokana said the new policy could have prevented him from winning his congressional seat. Freshman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said the DCCC's vendor policy would empower lobbyists because voters will have one less avenue to pursue change. The DCCC raised nearly $19 million in the first two months of this year, more money than it had raised by this point last election cycle, and the committee is relying more heavily on corporate lobbyists to collect checks. Lobbyists whose clients include health care, oil and gas, and coal interests raised almost 440000 for the DCCC in January and February. The FEC records show many of their clients oppose progressive priorities like a Medicare for all health care system, a Green New Deal, to, or a Green New Deal to mitigate climate change. I do not take money from corporations, PACs, or lobbyists, Connor said in an email. The DCCC should not either. DCCC spokesperson did not respond to questions, of course. So these must be the allies uh, former President Barack Obama is talking about. Must be the allies he's talking about. We don't want a firing, firing squad on the candidates and the DCCC, our allies, you know, making love to fossil fuel companies and pharmaceutical companies and real estate developers and Wall Street. Let's take the firing squad to the Republicans doing that. And don't get me wrong, Democrats are better on some things. Uh, female reproductive rights, you know, they're not as outwardly Islamophobic, uh, banning religions. So, you know, objectively, I could say they're better on some things. But economically, yeah. I mean, you get what you get. I want to play you something that presidential candidate Andrew Yang said about Flint, which I've, by the way, I've reached out to Yang's people two or three times to get an interview. Haven't heard back yet. But I thought this was clip was interesting because I haven't heard many presidential candidates talk about Flint. Here we go. So you call for prioritizing sustainable infrastructure in urban, uh, in urban development, right? And taking advantage of new materials and designs. And I think that there is no city that would be ground zero for that than Flint, Michigan. Yes, I agree. And so what type of plan would you have specifically for Flint, Michigan as president? It, at this point, it's, a, it's like a national tragedy slash embarrassment that the people in Flint um, still uh, have unsafe drinking water. And the problem is that the United States of America has gotten really bad at uh, building and rebuilding, where what, what's happened is you have this very old set of pipes that have then contaminated the drinking water for this population, and, and all of these uh, families and children are suffering as a result. Uh, the, the problem is uh, that those resources would theoretically come from the state of Michigan, and uh, Michigan does not have the resources to say, like, look, we need to just redo this. Like, like what they did is they tried to save a few bucks here and there, uh, and then it ended up and then they, they tried to sort of hand wave away the fact that this uh, contamination was happening. So I will uh, vow as president, um, we're going to make the drinking water in Flint uh, crystal, like, 
safe as can be and whatever that takes. And if that takes federal money going in and just tearing out all of those pipes and rebuilding them from ground zero, then that's what we're going to do. And if the state of Michigan doesn't have the will to do that, then we'll do it as a federal government. Do you feel that as president that there should be a federal inquiry into what happened? Yes, yes. Uh, and and the, the, the thing is, like, Flint is a national symbol, um, but uh, there are other Flints. Flint is not an isolated case in the sense that there are other decaying um, water, uh, water systems that are now funneling uh, contaminated water to children and other communities. Um, and th this is, uh, in many ways, an emblem of what's going wrong in our country, is that these systems were built decades ago, sometimes in cases where they didn't even know like, that some of this stuff existed. Um, and then we've let it decay over decades because we've just gotten terrible at actually building or rebuilding anything in this country. Our infrastructure is falling apart. And then, of course, it's uh, poor, like, uh, poor communities that get ignored politically that end up bearing the brunt of it. That was from The Root. Dot com. I don't know why they have like music playing underneath him. <laughs> it's kind of weird. There's a point that Andrew Yang made that I think is important. And by the way, I'm waiting for an answer from Bernie Sanders, uh, campaign chairman. I've posed a few questions to Faze Shakur, Shakir, which is his campaign chairman. Uh, one of my questions was on Flint and this. But remember, what this documentary is about and what the story Jen and I broke, the state of Michigan manipulated the testing and the data from 2016 all the way to last year. They were flushing in many homes and flushing, again, artificially lowers the lead levels. We only knocked on 450 doors only. It was a lot to do that. Uh, it took us both the summer and the fall. It, we did it in 100, 105 degree weather in, in many cases over the summer last year. It was laborious, but we would do it again. Now, we found that the testing was manipulated. We found that the testing was compromised. As Aaron Brockovich said in our story that we broke, this is cheating. The testing should be tossed. Free water distribution that was discontinued because of this data, where Governor Rick Snyder declared the water's restored, citing this data, should be tossed, and the distribution should be reopened while actually independent testers do this testing. Not the state of Michigan, who caused the problem in the first place, not even the federal government. Independent testing without government grants should do the testing, and it should be monitored by experts in addition to Flint residents. Every sample. Because at the root of the problem, how do you know if Flint's lead levels are now again meeting EP regulations if the data was cooked? And I think Andrew Yang, I haven't heard many other presidents, Tulsi Gabbard has spoken on it, Bernie Sanders has spoken on it, but there is this media distortion because the media and the journalists just simply pass off as stenography what Rick Snyder and the EPA and the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality said without actually looking into the numbers, without actually doing what we did, which was knocking on those doors. We spoke with 30, uh, we spoke with 150 residents. We found 35 homes where this improper flushing happened. And by the way, they were all on the record. We spoke with all of them on the record. We got the tapes to prove it. As I've told you, in February, we met with some of the highest ranking government officials in the state of Michigan about what we found. Trust me, they wouldn't meet with us if we hadn't presented to them the goods before. I can't go into detail of anything past that meeting or what is happening now. I can't 
share that, unfortunately. But what I can say is we met with some, some of the highest ranking officials in Michigan. So actual door knocking, actual old school journalism that you funded us to be there. Jen and I didn't have the money to stay out there for three weeks uh, in the summer and a week this fall. It came from you, from the GoFundMe, from membership. Actually can create results. I'm not guaranteeing something's going to come of that meeting, but I can tell you I have, we have, I have had follow-up discussions with those officials. So I wish I could tell you more, but I just can't for, for reasons that you all understand later. But what Andrew Yang makes the point, we need to basically debunk this myth that has been spread by the state of Michigan, by the media stenographers, the Flint Journal, Detroit Free Press, Detroit News, I could go on by the national outlets that, oh, well, Flint's water is now meeting federal regulations again. The testing data was compromised. This is not a conspiracy theory. You're going to see in this documentary, the testing data was manipulated because either dozens of resident, dozens of residents imagined ghosts, ghosts from the state of Michigan entering their home and running their water before testing for them. And in, in a lot of cases too, the state of Michigan didn't do it, but they verbally, officials verbally gave the residents the instructions, run your water before testing, which is against the EPA's lead and copper rule. And these were all residents that were on the official state testing program. It was called the Sentinel Testing Program. This is the focus group that Governor Snyder and the state of Michigan used to say they continued to test these homes and now Flint's lead levels are back under EPA regulations so we could start taking away resources. And why this is important? It ain't just about Flint. As Andrew Yang talked about, this is happening in other cities. EPA and state environmental agencies are known to doctor and manipulate testing numbers to game the system. Michigan, the city of Flint and Michigan Department of Environmental Quality for a long time were pre-flushing before taking samples. Pre-flushing is when you run the water the night before the morning test, which cleans out potentially high levels of lead, so you get a false lower number. What we found was actually worse than pre-flushing. We found flushing. Pre-flushing is when you do it the night before the morning test. Flushing is when you do it right before the test, day of. Pre-flushing, although frowned upon by the EPA, is not explicitly prohibited. It's not banned. Flushing is. You cannot flush a sample before a, you cannot, if you're sampling for the EPA's lead and copper rule, if you're collecting samples to meet EPA regulations for a city or a municipality, you cannot run the water right before testing. It is against the EPA's lead and copper rule. Shamefully, shamefully, as you'll find out in this documentary, the EPA is helping to cover up what the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality. But at the root of all this, children and adults might still be drinking contaminated water. And there's more than just lead. There's bacteria issues, there's uh, PFAS, PFAS, that is now a concern all around the country. Cancer-causing chemicals made in the manufacturing of Teflon. They've been found in North Carolina and the Ohio River Valley and many other places, including Michigan. Not, uh, they were found uh, in other parts of Michigan last year. And those parts were middle-class white people. So Governor Snyder, oh, was he pretty quick to respond to that. Flint took 18 months for them to admit there was an issue. 
Is there a difference between Flint and those white areas? 